The Power of Sound, a Monocle 24 collaboration with KEF. Hello, I'm Susan Rogers. I'm a uh, professor at Berklee College of Music and a PhD, and in my earlier life I was a record producer and recording engineer. I can't say that I developed a passion for sound as a child, but I definitely had what a lot of kids have, which is a passion for music. The Beatles were just coming out when I was about seven years old, and I love the Beatles, and I love the Rolling Stones, and my connection with music felt integral and important to me. in Anaheim, California, and our tract of homes was very happily, for me and the neighborhood kids, literally right next door to Disneyland. Literally. So Disneyland opened its doors in 1956. That was the year I was born, and I was a little kid uh, in a a neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood with a lot of children. So every Sunday night in the summertime, Disneyland set off fireworks over the Matterhorn, the big mountain ride they had going on. So you'd walk out with all the other neighborhood families, you'd stand on your sidewalk, and you'd look at the fireworks um, every Sunday night at 9 o'clock. And sometimes, on summer days, if you're outside, you can hear people screaming, screaming with joy and ecstasy as they're on these wild roller coasters in the in the Matterhorn or all the, the, the wild rides that they had at Disneyland. Those sounds, those sounds that combine potentially threatening things with the sounds of real ecstasy and joy are, have always been of interest to me. So fireworks are explosions, explosions in the service of entertainment and beauty. They look pretty. People screaming their brains out like they're about to die. It's actually the sound when they're on an amusement park ride, it's the sound of people getting a vicarious thrill, vicarious thrill, the pretend feeling of being in danger and knowing you're not really in any danger at all. That dichotomy is of great interest to me. Uh, That's the tension and the release that we hear in music and subsequently um, sounds that can be perceived in in a, in a variety of ways are, a ver- are very interesting to me. In other words, you can hear this as beautiful or hear it as ugly. You can hear it as simple or hear it as complex. Uh, uh, the greater variety of life, the more variety that you can build into your music and your sound design and things like that, the more interesting I find that. I wanted to be a record maker in some way, and that was the career I embarked on, teaching myself and getting some lucky breaks along the way. I was attracted to the technical side for practical reasons. It seemed like that was something I could do. Uh, It was something that I could do fairly easily and well. It fit my nature, and also there weren't many women in 1978. 
as recording engineers. I didn't know of a single one until I read the names Leslie Ann Jones and um, Peggy McCreary on the back of records. I mean, you just didn't see women as engineers. So uh, I thought that the technical route would be perfect for me because who's going to argue with your gender if you're repairing the tape machine or repairing the console? It was practical, it was rooted in logic and physics, and it was something I felt like maybe I would have an appetite for. I did not consider that I could make an artistic contribution. That was way beyond me, it seemed like. But uh, I did make a technical contribution. That, that was the right door for me to enter. Prince hired me in 1983 as his technician, and that was the first thing that I did for him. I uh, repaired his home studio and installed a new console, but he was the one who put me right into the engineering chair, and that's where I was expected to use the equipment artistically. When you get into the engineering chair, it's like going from being the person who repairs the movie camera to being the person who is the cinematographer. You have to consider it in a whole different way. So as a technician, you consider the individual parts, but as a, an artist, as someone who uses the equipment, you have to consider what emerges from the parts. So it feels a little bit like when you transition from technician to audio engineer, it feels a little bit like, you know nothing, Jon Snow. You know nothing. You know nothing. On which side should you pan the hi-hat? What about depth of field? How do you push that vocal back into the mix? How do you do it? Well, there's an answer to that, but you don't know that if you've just been uh, working with signal flow per se. So you have to learn all the artistic gestures that a painter would have to learn if they're pushing paint around on a canvas or uh, that a cinematographer would have to learn if they're deciding how to frame a shot in a television show or in a movie. Uh, the question you're asking yourself is, how do I convey a sense of this object's emotional message via the gestures I'm making? So uh, speech evolved in human beings to communicate information, but music evolved to communicate emotions. And people use music to alter their emotions or to match their moods or to make them feel a certain way or think a certain way. So the feeling is all important. How do you push sound around to get feeling to emerge? Again, there are answers to that, but there are so many variables, so many variables that it's, it, it can't be approached in a formulaic manner. Whether you're an engineer or a mixer or a producer, your job is to be kind of a liaison between the, the listener and the artist and you're, you're taking the artist's vision and you're making it uh, manifest reality, you're making an object out of it. It helps greatly to have a deep passion for music so that when you're in that chair, you as the engineer, the producer, the mixer, can be thinking selfishly in terms of what you want. How do I want to dance 
to this piece of music? How do I want my heart to break from this melody? And if it's not strong enough, where am I going to find the harmony? The harmony that's going to come underneath and give me the subtext in this piece of music. That lyric, that one you just said right there, that was gold. How do I move the other objects out of the way to make sure that the listener picks up on that great line you just delivered? And how do I push those other objects back in front of you when you're just kind of riffing here or saying the same thing twice? How am I moving the action around? How am I putting the spotlight of attention where I think it should go? There's no way of knowing whether or not we are right. And there's no way of knowing what portion of of listeners will agree with us. So we have to be passionate music listeners so that we can stand in for a good number of listeners. There have been so many moments in the studio that just light you up like a Christmas tree where you think to yourself, I never saw that coming. And it just knocks you out. And it can be something small or it can be something amazing, um, something large. Here's an example. Years ago, I was working with the artist Ted Hawkins. Uh, he's, He's the late Ted Hawkins now, but I was engineering and the producer was my friend and mentor, Tony Berg. We were in the studio, and we were doing the song called Biloxi, and it was um, it was a cover version of an older song, and Ted Hawkins was in his 60s at this time. He had spent some time in jail. He was a big man with a big, deep voice, and he actually was from Biloxi, Mississippi, so that's why Tony wanted him to do the song, and the track was great. It was L.A.'s finest session musicians. We had Jim Keltner on drums. We had the great John Pierce on bass. We had Chris Bruce on guitar. Just this all-star team, Greg Lease on, on pedal steel. Great, great musicians. That was a fun session to do. But now we were in the studio and we're doing the vocal and Ted's on the other side of the glass. He's sitting there on his chair. Big, big man. And uh, we get to the end of the song and Tony Berg says to him, just, just, just kind of riff, just kind of ad-lib. And, and, and Ted didn't know what he was talking about. And Tony said, just just repeat the line, the sky is red from off toward New Orleans. That was the tagline in the chorus. So uh, Ted says, all right, the song's playing a lot. <laughs> he got to the got to the coda, and Ted sings, and the sky was red from off toward New Orleans. In this voice that sounded like thunder, imagine James Earl Jones, if James Earl Jones could sing. And I instantly burst into tears. How does that happen? How does that happen when something is so great, you recognize it as being deeper than music? It taps something in you that uh, the uh, the late Joseph Campbell wrote the book, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces on Mythology, what he would call the universal truth. It becomes the music of you. And suddenly, the world just opened up. Moments like that happen in the studio a lot. Our colleague, the producer Greg Wells, said to students once, you guys, he's saying to the students, sitting here today, you have no idea how good good is. Good is ridiculously good. 
stupid good, so good that you shiver in your tracks. You recognize, wow, uh, you don't see that every day. first time I ever had an epiphany in sound itself was uh, around 1982. I was at Westlake Audio. My boyfriend was the technician there and I was visiting him. And it was a late night session and the great Mick Gazowski was in, was in the, the Westlake studio and he was mixing a Billy Idol track. I think it was called Catch My Fall. And uh, John and I, the boyfriend, we, we were in the control room, and Mick was very generous. He was just wrapping up his mix, and he said, uh, he saw me looking at the tape machine, and he had just finished the mix, and he went to get a cup of coffee, and he said, you can hit play if you want. And I thought, oh, it's Mick Kozowski. And it was in Westlake Audio. Westlake had the big five-way monitors up there and just some of the finest control rooms in the world. Westlake Audio and their studios, by the way, that's where Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones preferred to record. It's where they did Bad and Thriller and those records. So I was there and Mick said hit play, so I hit play. Hearing that mix come over those speakers, the fidelity was so great. You get the sense that, I remember thinking to myself, I think I can tell what color socks the drummer is wearing. That's how, how extraordinary that audio was. When I was in the music business in the late 90s, I was in my early 40s, and I began to recognize that I had uh, another calling, that I, I really was drawn to the idea of going to college, and I was drawn to the idea of studying consciousness and neuroscience. I was deeply, deeply interested in that topic, and I entered college as a freshman. I ultimately earned my PhD after eight years of study. And I took the advice of someone very wise, and I decided to move from consciousness studies into music perception and cognition. That was a smart move for me because I could apply my um, practical understanding of the human music connection with now a scientific, psychological understanding of the human music connection. So I teach music production and engineering, but I also teach in liberal arts. I teach psychoacoustics. It's really wonderful to have that conversation with the young musicians at Berkeley to talk about, here's how you can dial in a compressor or a limiter, and here's how the listening level in the studio affects what you're perceiving. You learn when you study the science of music perception, how unique each one of us is as a listener. We're unique physiologically. Uh, folks that have had formal musical training in their youth develop the capacity to be audio athletes. They can hear out the individual components of music faster and with greater acuity than those of us non-musicians who don't possess the neural infrastructure to be able to hear the same thing that our trained musicians hear. Formal musical training, uh, starting early in life, before the age of 10 or so, develops the auditory path 
from the auditory brainstem after it leaves our, our cochlea, so going up through through the brainstem at the top of the spinal column and terminating here just above our ears in the auditory cortex. But it also develops connections between the auditory processing regions of the brain and regions having to do with knowledge and regions having to do with the, the motor cortex. Humans have powerful, powerful tracks of connectivity between the auditory processing areas and the motor cortex up above, how our muscles move. So music is especially good at getting us to move. I think if you're really to get enjoyment from any piece of music, I think it's beyond analysis. I, I think you do the equivalent of taking your brain off of its leash and letting it go run and play in the dog park of its dreams. You, you let it do whatever it wants to do. You let it be free. And that's why music is so good for revealing our fantasies and revealing our inner desires and, and what we want. Music serves as such a perfect vehicle to let our psyches hop on board, take a ride to that place in our psyche where where we fantasize, where we think about the things we, we like or that we want or that we find interesting. I remember years ago, and this is going to sound like quite a sidebar, but uh, years ago I was on the Purple Rain tour. I was with Prince and we had a day off. We were in a recording studio and we came out of that studio and underneath the window of the van was a little note from some fans. And they, by the handwriting, it looked like it was young fans. And they said, please leave us your autograph six times. And that was funny. And, and, and Prince left the autograph. He signed it and he put it under a rock or something. And we drove off and he said, you know, it's not me they're interested in. They don't want to know about me. They want to know about themselves. He was saying that he served as merely a template for their fantasies. I don't know how a uh, young prince, he would have been 26 at the time, how he, he was wise enough to recognize that with all the fame and had the attention he was getting at that point. He was smart enough to know, it's not me they want. They don't even know me. It's themselves. I am an emblem of something that exists way down deep inside them, something they would like to be, a person they would like to know. All I'm doing is making those fantasies manifest. Um, that's an important concept for record makers. And, and I think record listeners, um, the function that we serve is um, to keep music alive, to make it alive. Uh, without a listener, it doesn't exist. 